career panel uh, hosted by the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We are so excited to have you here um, with us via Zoom or Facebook Live, whichever one you're attending from this evening. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. We have a very exciting lineup um, prepared for you. But first, let me tell you a little bit about our hosting organization, which is the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, the Tennessee World Affairs Council is a bipartisan um, not-for-profit organization based here in Tennessee, and you can uh, become a member, and we encourage you to do so. Um, the Tennessee World Affairs Council hosts a myriad of different events um, every single month, and uh, it is an organization that is dedicated to increasing uh, awareness on global affairs uh, here in Middle Tennessee, and as a part of the larger World Affairs uh, Council of America. So um, we will put in our chat box a link for you to learn more about TNWAC, and we encourage you to do so, especially if you enjoy tonight's program. There's many more uh, where that came from. So um, let me introduce now myself. I am a professor of political science over at Lipscomb University here in Nashville, Tennessee, and also a TNWAC board member. Um, and, and very proud to be serving in that capacity. Um, and I also want to um, pause before I introduce our panelists and tell you about the structure of this evening, right? So the way this evening is going to look is we're going to start off with um, moderator-led questions. So I'm your moderator for this evening and for this panel. And I have a series of questions for our panelists, and they'll be answering them. Um, if you have questions during this time, right, directly relating to what they're saying, um, you can enter a question on the Q&A feature of Zoom, which is should be down and an icon, it has some um, speech bubbles, right? So that's what we want you to use rather than the chat box. Um, so go ahead and you can put your questions there. Uh, we're gonna be collecting those questions and then we will be addressing uh, direct audience uh, questions and pivoting um, to ask the panelists those questions at the second half of the evening. Um, with that being said, if you have a question directed towards a specific panelist, please make note of that in um, your question in the Q&A, right? Say, you know, this question is specifically for Miss um, Monroe, and then colon, and then have that. Um, in the instance that we have such a volume of questions, uh, the panelists might be encouraged to address those questions individually kind of offline or in the Q&A box itself. Um, the more general questions will be addressed first, again, kind of allowing the full panel to respond, right? Um, I also encourage you to look at the chat box uh, while we are having our conversation because we will be sharing several resources with you, including links to uh, documents, uh, links to websites and et cetera, that you very well might want to save and reference during our conversation, right? So um, that's my encouragement for you to kind of be able to participate. If you're reading this or watching this, I should say, as a recorded um, event, then those should be in the show notes for you. 
Um, and I encourage you to both watch as well as uh, read those resources. So um, without further ado, let me go ahead and briefly introduce our panelists. I don't wanna take up too much time doing this, but that is not because there is not a lot to say. There is quite a lot to say about our panelists and their prolific careers, experience, and expertise. Um, I encourage you to read their full bios online, and there is a link for that that we will put for you in the chat box. So you can go ahead and actually go there now if you prefer. Um, so let me briefly introduce them and then we're kind of going to get a flavor of what they do in day to day life and or what they did in their careers and in their programs. So uh, first we have Alan DeBose and he is a diplomat in residence in US uh, for the US Southeast. Uh, he began his career in the State Department in 2005. So he has a, a myriad of experiences to share with us from the State Department and from the perspective of diplomacy. Um, next up, we have uh, representing kind of the national security sector. We have Deborah Monroe, and she served in the DIA from 1994 to 2021, with the last post being the senior U.S. defense liaison officer at the Pathfinder Intelligence Collaboration Center, the DI for the UK Ministry of Defense. Um, again, a large uh, swath of experiences and positions to glean from in talking to us about um, security and intelligence and that kind of angle of international careers. Um, next, we have Wayne Bernard, and he was previously with the International Justice Mission and now is serving as a professor at Belmont. And so he can kind of speak to us from that NGO perspective. Um, we have uh, Billy Woodward up next, and he has been with USAID, which is the United States Agency for International Development since 2008. So again, a long careers here uh, with varied experiences. And then lastly, we have Megan O'Donohue. And Megan is bringing to us her experience as a former Peace Corps volunteer. So I know many of the members of our audience are students and perhaps looking at some of these careers and these individuals who are so respected in their careers can be a little intimidating, uh, perhaps seem a little far off, but the Peace Corps is something, is an opportunity that is available to you immediately upon graduating college. Um, so Megan went to Burkina Faso and she's gonna be speaking directly to that experience that she had there. Um, so while the panel is kind of international careers, we wanna highlight that there's international opportunities that can be stepping stones to these careers that are available to you um, right now, or if not right now, uh, soon, very soon upon graduation. Um, so yes, this is the point where I would say join me in thanking our panelists, but, <laughs> but uh, I realize we are virtual, so uh, clap at home. <laughs> we have a, a wonderful lineup, and I'm very honored to be serving as the moderator for this esteemed group. Um, so the first question that I want to ask that I've already kind of alluded to is um, what a day in the life of, of you looks like. Um, and I know some of you are retired. Some of you, um, like with Megan, you're, you're past the Peace Corps. So at, in the area that you're representing, right, in the career that you're representing, um, if you can restate kind of um, your 
agency, your department, your program, and then your title, and then just give us an idea of what a day might look like. I think that would help uh, students to just get an idea of, um, yeah, of what these areas look like and what your day might look like. So we'll go ahead and um, start here. Uh, let's see, sorry, get my, oh, my um, things here. We're gonna start with uh, Wayne Bernard, right, and IGM. Thank you, Professor Haynes, and thank you for allowing me to be part of this program tonight. Um, yeah, a, a day in the life of someone working in an NGO. Uh, I worked with International Justice Mission formerly uh, in several roles for uh, about 10 years. Uh, and depending on which role I was in, um, I was either working in the field internationally or I was working uh, stateside at our headquarters in Washington, DC or I was traveling uh, throughout the United States, uh, throughout the world. Um, but basically, for instance, if you're at a headquarters of an NGO, you're obviously involved in um, all of the work all at once. And so IJM, of course, um, people on, on staff, if you will, would be from the, the legal team, lawyers, uh, social workers, investigators, uh, and then all of the business practices that are required to literally run an NGO, which is actually a business. Um, IJM is a, a medium-sized to large uh, uh, NGO uh, right there in Washington, D.C. Uh, started out of a, a, a very legal kind of lawyer feel. And so um, we, we are highly professional uh, in our dress and in our, our practice. Uh, we, we don't run and charge quite like lawyers do, but I would say that everything is, is important. It's urgent because we're working on issues of violent oppression against the poor worldwide. Um, and so the stories coming in from the field, uh, the mobilization that we're doing in the United States is of urgent life and death. Uh, and so you feel that sense of urgency. Uh, and so uh, working very uh, smart as opposed to hard uh, and, and being very critical in, and strategic in the work that we do, um, whether it's meetings uh, and, and, and making sure that those meetings, of course, are worthwhile. Uh, but basically starting as early as 7.30 and working until 5.36, uh, but then at times working on weekends and evenings, depending on if I was traveling, uh, if I was abroad, um, a lot of uh, when you're working uh, from DC and across the world, uh, a lot of, of phone connections, a lot of connections now would be through Zoom and, and other uh, platforms, uh, but a lot of connecting with the field in the phone, um, by phone. Uh, by about 11 o'clock in our office, we would uh, have been getting stories from the field of rescue operations and, and other important in real time information from the field and so would be on pretty high alert uh, and making sure that we have all the bases covered. Uh, in, in my work, especially uh, whether I was mobilizing uh, a student population across the United States in universities or uh, adults working in churches or other organizations, connecting because that's part of our, our, our goal is to connect with, um, with other, uh, USAID in fact is, is one of our partners and many, many partners. Uh, we would be working with the State Department and others. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, meetings uh, off campus, if you will, uh, of our headquarters meeting uh, on, on campus in our headquarters, meeting by phone, 
um, a lot of the work that we do is collaborative. And so it's not uncommon to be in those kinds of conversations and meetings most of the day. Thank you so much, um, Professor. We appreciate that, especially appreciate the the broader take on NGOs broadly, um, because there are so many different international NGOs that are out there. IGM, of course, has an amazing reputation um, for for helping those internationally. But for students who are interested, um, there's many, many NGOs mm -hmm. that are out there that are doing significant and valuable and hard work um, mm -hmm. in the international sphere. Um, I'm going to go ahead now and pivot to Alan DeBose with the State Department. Thank you very much. So let's talk just for a second. State Department, what is the State Department? The U.S. Department of State represents U.S. foreign interests abroad. So our goal is not domestic in the U.S., it's abroad. We represent the White House. We are the official people who are the voice of the U.S. abroad. As part of the State Department is the U.S. Foreign Service. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So when someone thinks of a diplomat, that's someone who's in the U.S. Foreign Service. Now, if you ask the question, what's a typical day? Well, there are more than 290 embassies and consulates spread across the world. None of them are the same. And U.S. interests aren't the same in any of those countries. So really, there is nothing typical except for the fact that there's nothing typical. And so really, a lot has to do with whatever assignment you have as far as what uh, responsibilities you have for the job you're doing. So some of the jobs we have in the US Department of State are pretty much like you'd find in the private world. I was working in the private world in finance and business operations and I'm a management officer, which means I do a lot of administrative work, human resources, finance, IT. But then we have some things that are fairly unique to us as well. For example, consulate. No one does consular but us. We're the ones issuing visas and our consular people do something similar to what you may see in the private world as well. They are what I call our retail. If an American is abroad, they're in charge of taking care of that American. So if an American loses their passport and they need help, chances are the person they're going to talk to is a consular officer. So we essentially are representing whatever interests there are abroad. And I can't emphasize enough that since it's so different and the world never sleeps, we never sleep. So that means when we're abroad, someone has to be ready to answer the phone. Someone literally has a phone and a bag and information because if something happens in that country, it has to get back to Washington where we have our operations center that never closes. So I always tell somebody, if you look on TV and see something exploding on TV, Who's the first person there? It's probably not DOD, it's probably us because we're in places where other agencies may not be. But I can't emphasize enough that if you go to our site, careers.state.gov, instead of me spending an hour talking about all the different options, you'll see some of the career options we have. And as you start to read through them, you'll see what type of work fits your, your interests more. Thank you so much, um, Alan. You were cutting out on my end, but I think that my internet has caught up. Um, so now I'm going to pivot. Um, and everyone, again, the link that uh, Mr. Du Bois referenced is now in your chat box. So you can click on that. 
Um, now I'm going to pivot to Deborah Monroe, who uh, had a prolific career at the DIA. Thank you. And my and uh, undo mute. Um, I worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency for about 27 years. Um, most of that time was in Washington, D.C. Uh, and fortunately, the last five years was in the U.K. Um, DIA is part of the U.S. intelligence community. There are, believe it or not, 16 agencies and entities, organizations that make up uh, the intelligence community. Uh, the ones you obviously would know are CIA and DIA and NSA. Uh, there's also uh, NGA, which is the geospatial, which is the, the satellite pictures and maps and all those things. And then there's several others that do very specific uh, kinds of work to support um, individual segments of uh, the US government. What I will say is uh, I have to uh, I have to agree with Wayne in, in that um, there are all sorts of jobs within the IC. Um, one of the things that I think they're going to post is uh, kind of a cheat sheet I put together for DIA. But if you go to any of the intelligence community sites, there will be a, a section for students. Um, all of the IC agencies offer internships and a number of those are paid. So it's definitely a place to start if you're interested. Uh, our typical day, um, it depends on, on your job. Um, most people, when they think intelligence, they think of uh, some James Bond kind of character. And, and while we have folks that work in operations, that's not what most of us do. Um, I will talk about the analytics side of the house. Uh, because that's where I primarily worked. But just so you know, we also have things like accountants and business people and finance people and uh, corporate communications people. It runs the gamut of all the business side things that we have to uh, have in order to run a large uh, uh, department uh, or uh, organization. So there's lots of opportunities for different careers. If you think of analysts, um, I, the best thing I can equate it to is, um, it's kind of like to my first career, which is, is journalism. You're collecting information, you're assessing that information and trying to make sense of it. Um, our entry level kind of analysts are assigned to a team and they, they work a little piece of an account. Say, uh, if you're in DIA, your customer is uh, the US Department of Defense and um, our motto is excellence in defense of the nation. So it's our job to give our military leadership the best information they can. So if they're faced with making a decision, they can make that decision uh, well. So as a new analyst, you're working on part of an account with more senior analysts and you're learning about that part of the world or that cyber piece of activity or there's any number of things. Um, so it's, it's really interesting uh, to do that. It's a lot of writing, it's a lot of reading, it's a lot of uh, learning to think through problems and assess. Um, as you get more senior, obviously, you are leading teams that are doing that work. Um, if you're, in my case, as a 
more senior manager at DIA, I was managing offices. So sometimes I had 300, 400, 500 people to look after. So that was um, coming in in the morning and seeing as uh, we, as Alan uh, relayed to what in the world has blown up overnight. Uh, what is, uh, what, what's happened in somewhere in the world that we didn't expect that we need to react to. Uh, and then there's the ongoing problems that we have um, for all of the intelligence community, our priorities are set by um, something called the National Intelligence Priority Framework, very complicated kind of thing, but it is entirely tied to what the U.S. government has identified as its priority concerns. So what is this country doing? What is this bad guy terrorist doing? All of these different things come in together, and uh, that kind of drives what you're doing. Um, to get a little more specifically in my last job, just to give you an idea of the scope, I spent five years working with our UK partners as the senior US person at um, kind of their big intelligence center. And again, it's the same thing. You go in in the morning, you sit down collaboratively and look and say, okay, what is the problem du jour? Is there anything new? Um, what are our ongoing projects that we're working together? Uh, does somebody need to talk to someone on the US side? Does someone have a question? And I know where there's a resource that they could use to solve that problem. So um, I, a lot of times I call being a liaison with a partner kind of like the dating service. You know, I find the two set people and put them together so they can talk. I host visitors um, and just made sure our US team of 40 some odd people uh, were all okay from a care and feeding standpoint. Um, and you just respond to whatever comes up. Um, again, uh, as Alan indicated, uh, or it's, or actually I guess Wayne also, there's no normal day, it's whatever happens. Uh, and we react to that and do the best I can to support the customer. So with that, I will toss it back. Okay. Thank you so much, Deb. Um, I'm going to pivot now to Megan O'Donohue, who is coming to us um, again from her Peace Corps experience. So speaking to uh, the Peace Corps more broadly, as well as your unique uh, experience, Megan. Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me here. And um, like she just said, I my experience is a bit different from other experiences in that it's not a lifetime career. It is a short duration of time. It's still not that short. Um, the general contract is 27 months, usually around two years after two years in sight after intensive in-country training. training. Uh, but for people who are interested in long-term careers uh, in international relations, uh, in whatever field that might be, the Peace Corps is a really um, is for many people who have careers in these fields, this is a starting point. Uh, oftentimes when you do have a career in international relations, you need to be able to show that you have experience living abroad, often in hardship countries. Um, you have to show that you have the ability to assess country needs, to develop projects on your own and to implement and then oversee the continuation of those projects. And that's generally what you have in the Peace Corps. Um, it's like everyone else has said, and I think I think will become the theme of today, it is completely dependent on where you are, what you're doing, what project you're doing. Um, for those of you who are interested in joining the Peace Corps, um, 
it, you can somewhat direct where you go. They changed the application process recently by recently, like five years ago, but too recent um, for me to have this experience. But uh, in the past, you kind of went wherever they put you, and now you get to um, kind of request a, a field and um, a, a location as well. So um, if you go to peacecorps.gov, you can start really seeing more about the application process. But I'll leave that there, uh, because what's interesting is what's happening in the day-to-day -day life. For me, I was in a um, village of about 1,000 people in West Africa. Um, I was outside of the capital, so I did have a paved road, and I did have electricity, but I did not have much else. Um, you, when you're in the Peace Corps normally and pretty much across the board, you're, you will be living in the same circumstances in which the people you are serving live. So if you are in a, um, uh, in a populated city in Ukraine, you're going to be living in an apartment building. Uh, if you are in West Africa, you are going to be living in, um, kind of a bungalow. Uh, I lived in a, um, basically, uh, a concrete structure. Uh, that was in the, uh, it was in a sub-Saharan environment, so that means it was usually very warm, uh, very, very warm, uh, no running water, so you have to um, find ways to get your water every day, uh, and a lot of your typical day kind of just goes into doing the same things that your neighbors are doing, because with the Peace Corps, you have three primary goals. The first one, of course, is to do a type of development work, uh, but the other two are very much Kind of soft diplomacy work. So you're doing cultural exchange. You are uh, sharing the American culture and American history, American politics. You are a representative of the United States in the location that you are, uh, and you are sharing your experiences and you are learning. Uh, the third goal is to return to the United States and share the culture of the place that you live. So cultural exchange and spending time with the people you're at takes up the majority of your day. For me, my day would consist of waking up, uh, doing whatever I can to get water, uh, I would go to my next door marketplace and hang out for like two to three hours and you just sit there and you talk to people about anything or nothing or you don't talk at all. Uh, you are literally spending time with people. Uh, and depending on whatever project I was doing at the time, sometimes my afternoon and my mornings would consist of doing, um, uh, facilitating, uh, like development activities. So for one thing, I was a health volunteer. So my work was officially to be doing um, activities that promoted community health in areas like malaria, hygiene, um, maternal and uh, neonatal health, um, nutrition, things like that. Uh, but I also was able to do what other, other development programs interested me and interested my community and address community needs. So I ended up actually doing, uh, creating a sheep raising group. So we spent a lot of time uh, gathering grant money, writing grants, um, uh, herding 100 sheep in like 100 kilometers, uh, distributing sheep, um, and then doing uh, interactions with local vets to work on better sheep raising activities and working on raising more sheep. So really, it totally depends on your community, your skills, your interests. You have a lot of say in um, where you go, but once you get there, your day is really in tuned with what the community is doing there. Um, so it is about integration and it is about uh, being open to the people you're with. Um, and while that sounds very fun, it, can, it is not necessarily glamorous. Um, it is hard work and it, is, it does develop some really um, valuable skills for a lifetime career in international relations or not at all. Um, so that's, I could talk for hours about it, but that is about all I can say right now.
Thank you, um, Megan. I appreciate that. And we'll have more opportunity to kind of uh, build upon what we're talking about here. Um, Billy Woodward with USAID, um, you're kind of up next and kind of rounding out our conversation in regards to what does a day in the life look like for you? And, uh, um, thank you. And Megan, thank you. You brought back some great memories. I'm also a returned Peace Corps volunteer, so it's fabulous to hear. Um, so yeah, USAID, I, I think as many of my colleagues are saying, is just uh, as different as you can imagine. Um, we uh, work overseas and, and missions usually uh, attached to the U.S. embassies and work on uh, providing international development assistance and, and disaster assistance um, to uh, a variety of countries. Um, just looking to do that through uh, partnerships and investments um, uh, that are saving lives, uh, helping countries and communities reduce poverty, uh, just uh, strengthen their democratic institutions, um, and just helping people in, in countries kind of emerge from humanitarian crisis and beyond. So, um, and th there's partnerships, and, and again, I think Megan was talking about that, or just relationships, and um, it really is important. I, I just, I think of, there's a technical aspect, you know, to being a, I guess, a USA Foreign Service officer, but then there's also you're meeting with um, um, counterparts in the government and the host government where you are and our partners, um, uh, uh, international uh, non-government organizations or local NGOs, uh, just a variety of impactful, uh, meaningful conversations that drive uh, development and humanitarian assistance. So just, um, uh, again, as varied as one wants to make it and through a variety of sectors, health, uh, education, democracy and governance. I'll pause there. Great, thank you. And I, I love the the synergy. So any other, you know, tag teaming off of others' answers, I, I love that because and it does show and it reiterates Megan's point of of the Peace Corps specifically, although there are others that can be really wonderful launching pads for some of these uh, careers uh, that maybe students haven't ever thought about. Um, so uh, the next the next question that I have um, is kind of from the perspective of our um, audience members, many of which, although not all of which are students. So um, I wanted to ask, to what extent did you plan for your present career? Um, and you know, when you were a student, if you were to ask yourself when you were a student, uh, what you were doing, what you would be doing professionally, what would you have answered at that point? So we'll go ahead and we'll go in the same order. Um, and I will ask that question of uh, Professor Bernard first. Well, I would say that uh, from a very young age, as a child growing up in South Texas, I I had a deep sense of uh, a desire for purpose and meaning. Um, I've grown up in that kind of family where community and public service in a variety of ways uh, was modeled for us. And we were involved in that at an early age. And so my mindset from the beginning in terms of vocation, in terms of my passion and purpose uh, was to be involved for my lifetime in helping others. Uh, not always knowing at any point what that might look like, but knowing that that was the, the trajectory. Uh, that would be the thread that if you pulled it, it, it would make sense across my career, which happens to be quite varied and a lot of different jobs in different sectors. 
But when I look back on that career, uh, I see this common thread of, of my vocation, if you will. And I see those as being very different. Um, and so, uh, yeah, in some ways I would say, yes, uh, I, I actually did see myself doing all of the things that I have done because along the way, uh, just being faithful uh, as a professional, as a, a, a lifelong learner, uh, as a person continuing to be developed and also developing others, um, I invested myself in, in all that it would take, educationally, training, and otherwise, and experiences, uh, to step into roles uh, of need, of the greatest need uh, in the world, uh, whatever that might be. Uh, I felt, if you will, this tug, this calling, uh, not being pushed, but literally being pulled uh, into the world to help solve some of the greatest problems in our world. Um, and so uh, along the way, uh, I made decisions uh, based on my context, based on where I was, what I was doing, what education I felt was lacking, what development I needed, um, what my own sense of strengths and giftedness was at the time, and what other people were speaking into my life in terms of what they were seeing and just continued to follow each step and each path, which always led me to the next place. Um, and so then when I look back at 63 years old, I see this incredible uh, kind of network, if you will, or tapestry of experiences and education uh, and quote jobs um, that, that quite frankly fit very well together. Uh, and they all have that same sense of meaning and purpose of uh, being developed as a person, uh, but also stepping into the needs of other people and helping to transform and develop not only people, but systems, uh, whether those are local or global. Um, and, and to at this point, clearly in my life, is to speak uh, always into the next generation uh, and making a way for others to come uh, along as I have come along to understand who they are, uh, what their purpose is, uh, their passions and how all of that fits together uh, in meaningful life of work, uh, but also uh, just the joy of, of being involved in partnerships and, and working with people worldwide. Great. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. Um, Alan DeBose, what about you for, the, for your um, diplomacy and State Department career? Did you anticipate that or did you plan for it? Um, and what did you think when you were a student? Well, my story is not as noble. Uh, undergrad, I was an economics major, got my MBA in finance. I wanted to get out of there and go make money. So my goal was to make as much money as possible, move as quickly as possible. And I was trying hard to do it. I had some bumps in the road, but I ended up at a company called Iridium LLC, which was a startup satellite telecommunications company. And about six and a half billion dollars. I started out as employee number 60. We grew to about 600. I had half a million dollars in stock option and had moved to level of director there. And we went bankrupt. So I had nothing. I had a, a, a baby and paper and nothing more than that. And so I said, oh, goodness, let me figure out what I'm going to do now that I'm, I've been working 17 years and I have the rest of my life. What am I going to do? And I recovered. And one day I was looking at an ad by Colin Powell saying, we're looking for people with business skills and administrative skills. And I thought, I have business skills and administrative skills. 
and this was my calling, I guess, was Colin Powell, you know, like the Army, we want you. It was kind of him saying, we want someone with your skills. So essentially, the answer is, I didn't know that I was developing the skills to become a foreign service officer. And if you go to careers.state.gov, you'll see what we call our 13 dimensions. And these 13 dimensions are 13 uh, characteristics that we see in people who tend to be successful as diplomats or foreign service officers. And they include common things like leadership and composure, have to have good judgment. And one thread you're gonna see among everybody here tonight is what we call cultural adaptability, which basically means you might be a hot shot wherever you are doing whatever you do where you're comfortable, but if we pick you up and take you somewhere and say, herd those sheep, what are you gonna do? That's why we love Peace Corps people. We love veterans. We love them because they have checked off that cultural ability box like some brilliant people can't do in the private world. So the answer to your question is basically what I was doing by working with an international startup that ended up going bankrupt was I was developing some of those skills that are necessary to work in a competitive international environment. It's just that the competition isn't necessarily money driven. It's driven towards providing the support or doing the, the uh, taking responsibility for whatever that assignment is on any given day or night, three o'clock in the morning call, we've all gotten them. You, you have that sense of mission where you want to get this done. And that's what I think, uh, I, I, as soon as I hit foreign service, I knew it. But before foreign service, I never knew they were looking for people like me. Thank you so much, Ellen. And actually, um, Ellen, you started off with something that I think is actually really of interest to our students, given the chat box. So we have both David McGee as well as Sarah Carmichael, who have been asking about majors. Um, and I know you kind of started off saying you were an economics and finance major. So I'll just go ahead and kind of continue that thread with the rest of the panelists and say, if you don't mind telling us your major, I think the students are kind of interested in that. Um, and then we'll we'll also talk about other um, incorporate other questions that audience members have. But if you don't mind telling us your major and then kind of as well as that trajectory, um, I think that would be helpful and of interest to our audience members. So I'm going to give it uh, to uh, Deborah Monroe and and ask you, Deb, what did you what did you plan for? What did you expect? Uh, did you see yourself uh, the DIA? I believe you're muted, Deb. Yeah, we go again. I'll have to try and remember that. Um, when I was a student, I had no clue that uh, the intelligence community existed. Uh, not, I mean, vaguely, but um, I was very interested in international affairs. Um, my first career and undergraduate degree was in journalism. So I did that for a number of years, uh, working in television news, uh, primarily as a news producer. And um, so I, you know, I, I saw a lot of what was going on and this is the dark ages pre-internet. Pre, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, where we got all of our information from a uh, news wire, but that was, that, was, um, that interest and curiosity. Uh, journalism at that point was also very much kind of a service 
Um, and I think that theme of service, just to echo um, what Alan said and, and uh, Wayne said, um, if you're going to work for in the intelligence community, you're certainly not doing it for the money, though uh, I am quite happy with government benefits. Thank you. Um, I'm happy to be a retired government employee, but um, you're, you're not going to have $500,000 in stock and anything. Um, but you do, it is a sense of service to the nation. Um, and that is a theme of giving back, of protecting, you know, trying to make a difference in whatever small way you can. That, that is very important. So I worked as a journalist for a number of years. I figured out that I didn't really want to do this for the rest of my life. Um, managed to get an MBA part-time along the way because I knew that an MBA would be a very useful thing. Um, and my friend, Pat Ryan, who is the uh, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, uh, about 30 years ago, talked me into applying for a job at DIA. Um, and I did, and surprisingly, I got the job. So I think uh, the underlying thing there is I was willing to take a chance on something I didn't think I had a clue or a prayer of getting. You know, it never hurts to apply, it never hurts to try. Uh, so I tried to do that and uh, I was successful. So in preparation for the career, I think the things that are strengths, uh, MBA, understanding how to manage people, organizations, events, whatever. Um, uh, I have to agree with Alan, that is absolutely essential skill in our business. Um, also absolutely essential is understanding how to write and communicate. I think regardless of where you, what uh, part of uh, this, this field you're going into, understanding how to relay information succinctly uh, is absolutely critical. And it's not college writing, but it's, it's something that if you go into the business, whatever your particular organization will teach you um, how to do that. And um, I guess last, my I have undergraduate degree in journalism, an MBA, and then uh, the DIA was nice enough to send me to the Naval War College uh, during my time there. And I also have a, 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 a degree in national security, a master's degree in national security and strategic studies. So, so. Thank you, Deb, I appreciate that. And we did have uh, Sarah Carmichael, Carmichael who was asking about the necessity of graduate school and all of these careers as well, which kind of gets us to that next question on stepping stone. So I'll ask that then too. Um, now going to uh, Megan O'Donohue uh, with the Peace Corps, um, to what extent did you know about the Peace Corps? To what extent did you plan about it when you were, you know, in college? And maybe I'll kind of go back for you. Like, when did you find out about it? Um, you know, like as a freshman and et cetera. Um, yeah, just curious. Um, yeah, so it's very interesting uh, to talk about being kind of, Peace Corps was very much the beginning of things for me. And um, something that uh, everybody's mentioned here, but it's been, that I find to be really good advice, and I know we're going to get to advice soon, but is that it's okay to figure out your career by process of elimination. You do something, it doesn't really work out. You try something else, and then you figure out kind of along the way what works best for you. Uh, but for me, Peace Corps, I, when I was in college, I, I thought I was not idealistic. I thought, you know, I, 
I'm, I'm a very pragmatic, serious person, but I got to admit that uh, I always was probably a little bit idealistic. Uh, when asked what I wanted to do for my life, um, my answer was travel and find a career that just lets that happen. Um, so I didn't, I, I had a sense of what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go. I wanted to travel, adventure, see things, do things, really be with people. Um, but I didn't necessarily know exactly what I wanted for a long-term career. I knew I just wanted to be abroad. So Peace Corps was a really good option for that. But uh, I guess I, I always knew that the Peace Corps existed, but I, I grew up in kind of rural East Tennessee. Uh, I did not really know anyone who had ever done the Peace Corps. I, I didn't meet anyone who had done the Peace Corps until I was in college. And that was just kind of offhandedly, there wasn't really much of a Peace Corps presence um, my entire uh, life pre-Peace Corps. Uh, and I had just kind of heard about it and I thought, okay, well, one day I'm, I'm gonna do the Peace Corps. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, so I, uh, as I was in um, undergrad, I got to meet some former Peace Corps volunteers, but I thought, okay, maybe Peace Corps, that's a bit too intense, it's two years, I'll, I'll do a Fulbright. Fulbright sounds fun, it's a shorter amount of time, but uh, I, was, I was planning on doing a Fulbright um, in, um, in Morocco or in Tunisia, but when I was in college, it was uh, the Arab Spring, and it became suddenly much more difficult to do a, um, a Fulbright uh, in those areas. So I had to quickly kind of reassess um, about in my sophomore, junior year of college. Uh, and I realized that, okay, I think, I think Peace Corps is it. Uh, it just always kind of was a gut feeling um, that I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I don't even know what I'm doing. They can send me anywhere. I'll go. They just tell me I'm on that plane. Uh, my undergraduate degrees are in French and political science. Um, French is very useful. Um, any kind of language skills are highly useful for Peace Corps volunteers or for any international relations work abroad. Uh, but my, when I was offered a position, the suggested position was health. And I was like, that's cool. I have no experience in health. I am not a nurse. I don't know biology. I have not taken a science class since I was 16 years old. Um, perhaps I need to get some experience. So I, I communicated a lot with a Peace Corps recruiter who gave me a lot of suggestions for um, how to get more experience prior to joining the Peace Corps. But this was kind of back in the wild days where you just kind of go wherever your skills put you. Um, because I was French speaking, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa was in dire need of people that had these language skills. Uh, but kind of responding to the question of, you know, it, is my degree going to keep me out of the Peace Corps? Not necessarily. I had friends who had theater degrees. I had friends who had sports management degrees. What they're looking for is, isn't necessarily you showing up with this perfect resume saying, look, clearly I am an expert on um, international relations. What they're wanting to look for is how quick do you think? Can you figure things out on the ground? Are you flexible? Are you adaptable? Can you immerse yourself in new places? They're looking for these kind of soft skills that don't necessarily show up in a, in a degree. So um, I was able to kind of put my, my language skills to use more so than I was my political science skills, but you just have to show that you know how to work with people. Um, so I, I applied in my, in my junior year, I didn't have any Peace Corps recruiters where I lived. Um, I had to actually travel elsewhere to go meet with a recruiter because there, was, there were none in, in my undergrad. Uh, so if you are at a university and you don't have a Peace Corps recruiter near you, uh, you can go to peacecorps.gov and you can look for you know, volunteer, 
uh, looking for universities and Peace Corps. And from there, you can find the nearest recruiter toward, to you. And you can email them, arrange a meeting with them, and they will be just as helpful for you um, as a non-student at their university as they would be otherwise. So I had to kind of do my own research, make my own connections in order to actually join. And I think that actually showed that I was dedicated to it more so than otherwise. Yeah, I think that's, I got there somewhere. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thank you, Megan, and a shout out to the fellow political science majors, since I'm a political science professor, but um, I know we're going to be talking about different hard skills, and I know language is always mentioned as something that is uh, valuable, and so we'll kind of get there too, but certainly majoring in it is um, shows that value as well. Um, Billy, uh, rounding out our panel, um, what about you? What did you anticipate when you were in college? And did you did you know about USA? Did you know what it was? And did you anticipate your career? Yeah, I uh, I did not. And I think I I think coming out of high school, even I, so, I grew up in Clarksville, Tennessee, just up the road. I don't think I ever anticipated. I know I didn't um a career in international development and, and Megan I'm just laughing I, I vividly remember the first time I met someone in Peace Corps and uh just like oh my gosh you guys are still around you know and this was in Panama in 1994 my I was in the military my National Guard unit was down there and met these Peace Corps volunteers in the city um but yeah I, I think I, I've got this securitist securitist route to the foreign service with USAID as um I've been so in the military, in the National Guard, and um, um, I've worked in law enforcement, um, and worked in the NGO, uh, it's at the American Red Cross, and then at age 40, like I'm joining the Foreign Service at USAID, so um, quite a, a number of different routes uh, to get there. Um, would highly recommend the Peace Corps. I think uh, my state colleague also talked about just looking for people who um, can adapt to overseas in different environments, and, and that's um, the guidance I got uh, in grad school, and I, I uh, so I was a criminal justice major in college, and um, when I wasn't getting hired, when I uh, was at the University of Oregon getting my master's, and I was trying to get on with aid, um, I was very fortunate, I had a recruiter spend about five minutes with me, and he's like, finish your master's degree, because I was about halfway through it, <laughs> um, and get overseas, maybe join the Peace Corps, <laughs> and that's exactly what I did, and 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 as I was saying, there are many routes to the Foreign Service within USAID and, and Foreign Service for aid, you do have to have a master's, but there's several other mechanisms, several other ways to get hired uh, within aid uh, that you don't need a master's. And, um, and I see the question on, you know, history and math degrees. Yes, I have colleagues that have both those at, at, at aid. I have someone that has a master's in sports management that's working at aid. Um, so it, it runs the gambit. And um, so just a lot of opportunities um, that are out there. Over. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right. So I'm actually going to kind of, I know the, the panelists have the list of questions that I kind of provided you previously or prior to the panel. So I'm going to kind of marry the, um, the next two questions together um, and also kind of draw from some of the questions that um, people are putting in our chat box because they're really related and I don't want things to seem um, redundant. But, you know, in talking about how much you anticipated your present career, it does sound like um, in a lot of instances, um, just being flexible and also adventurous and open to new ideas 
um, and suggestions and et cetera is really important. Um, but if, if there's somebody in our audience now, a student or otherwise, who is looking at these careers and says, wow, this is so interesting. I really want to work for the State Department. I really want to work in intelligence or USAID, or I really want to do the Peace Corps. Um, what specific advice and stepping stones would you recommend? And, you know, students in the chat box are kind of asking, and we've kind of touched on it, like what majors might you recommend? Um, do you think grad school is necessary? And then, um, you know, another student specifically mentioned like, okay, how critical are languages? So if you were going to kind of give some, um, you know, your two cents on what you think would be the most valuable use of their time right now, uh, what would you say? So we'll go first with you, Professor. Oh, mute. <laughs> Sorry. I would have to say that I would place learning a language, if not more than one language, incredibly high, uh, regardless. Uh, let me back up quickly. My, my undergrad studies were in theology and psychology, an, an integration of the two. I was very, um, very much interested in holistic understanding of people. Uh, my master's is in marriage and family therapy. It was new at the time. I liked it because it moved away from treating the individual as a psychologist to working in terms of systems, uh, family systems, community systems. Um, and then my doctorate is in uh, human development, uh, developmental psychology for the same reason, is looking at people over the lifespan and wanting to understand people holistically and how we develop uh, what stands in the way of, of our development and what actually encourages healthy development. Um, I would say, I, I get this question all the time as a professor, I did not go straight from undergrad to my master's. I went straight into work, uh, but I quickly in my first job realized that I, was, I did not have enough skill set or training or education. And so immediately started my master's degree, uh, which proved to be a, a great step for me. Um, and so I finished my master's degree and I worked for a little while uh, my background is pretty diverse. Uh, it's, it's been in uh, uh, theological studies and work with churches. It's been primarily in counseling. Uh, and so I did that in the Texas prison system. I did that in private practice. I did that in churches. Uh, I did that at the university level. Uh, and it was at the university that I realized, you know, someday I may want to teach. Plus, I just love learning. And so I went back and got my Ph.D., uh, and, and I'm glad I did. Uh, I, would, I would mirror what Deborah said. Uh, in, in, in all of these studies and in my career and in my various jobs, I have learned to write and speak uh, and, and to do that well. Uh, and again, it's not the, the same as all college writing courses, that's for sure. So for instance, going to law school teaches you how to think, teaches you how to communicate, thinks, uh, teaches you how to write. Uh, and you don't necessarily, as many of my friends at IJM, uh, will not necessarily practice law in the way that we think of law the rest of your career. Uh, you could be doing uh, many different, many different jobs. Um, my daughter is a history uh, major at undergrad uh, and then a museum science uh, master's degree. And she uh, works for one of the, the largest architectural firms in New York City. Uh, and has designed uh, international museums in Kuwait and around the world. 
um, you know, I, I think of history and the skill set involved in history in terms of input, in terms of being able to coalesce a lot of knowledge and understanding and distill that in a very succinct kind of way uh, as, as she does. Um, but yeah, I, is a master's absolutely essential? It really depends on, uh, I would say, your interests and, and what it is you see yourself doing. I don't know that I would choose a degree uh, uh, a major just to choose a major. I think it needs to fall in line with who we are. Uh, I think it needs to connect with, with our passion and with our purpose and, and at some level with what we'd like to see ourselves doing, uh, you know, even if it's a circuitous route like it was for me and others here, uh, you know, more often than not, will it lead me to do what it is I really am wanting to do? And does it match my skill set and my interests uh, so that I'm actually working and, and fulfilling a fulfilling life in the work that I do. Um, but, but, you know, many, many jobs, quite frankly, uh, where I work, uh, both at the university level and with International Justice Mission, really do, in my mind, require a master's degree and that further training. I'm thinking about masters in international development that have helped uh, people at, uh, at IJM move into roles in the field, doing monitoring evaluation and working with USAID and so many other organizations to do development projects. Uh, and so that's a very, uh, a very skilled master's degree in the kind of work that people do, at least with International Justice Mission and some of those that are represented here. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it depends. I, that may not be the best answer, but I, I think it really all depends. Uh, and I think you can have a lot of different majors uh, doing jobs in a lot of the work that, that we do. Uh, and, you know, we've talked a lot uh, in terms of this idea of transferable skills. Are you ad adaptable? Uh, do you, do you, are you working now on cultural competencies? And you can do that right where you are. Uh, you don't have to go abroad to do that. But I would study abroad, uh, at, go often <laughs> and study abroad and have those opportunities to engage culturally, not as a tourist, uh, but in studying, uh, I know I did. And after graduation with my undergrad, I traveled for several months in Europe. Um, and, and that was back when, you know, there was no EU and, and you were changing money at every, at, at every uh, crossing point uh, into the next country. And I learned a lot and, and put myself in that environment because I wanted to be challenged uh, to think globally and to, uh, before it was really done that much, to think globally and to be compelled, if you will, to develop cultural competencies, uh, probably the hard way, but it, but it worked. Great, thank you so much. And actually you kind of touched upon, I know um, in the chat box, David McKee was talking specifically about the utility of a history degree. So I think you validated his um, history degree. So David, just know uh, that's among the, the many majors uh, that can add value. If you are enjoying your history degree, you don't need to, uh, you know, like you were saying, uh, Wayne, pick another major just to pick one. Um, if that's what you're passionate in, that's what you're excelling in. Um, so, um, Alan, what do you think? Uh, what are some uh, advice that you would give in regards to stepping stones uh, for the State Department specifically? All right, so there's a running joke in the State Department that you ask three questions to a State Department person and your answer you're going to receive is, that depends. 
And guess what? This is the third question. So we have different careers in the State Department. So if someone wants to be more of the, the administrative specialist type, a construction engineer who's going to build an embassy, a facility manager who's going to take care of the buildings and ground, an MD. We have regional doctors. We have regional psychiatrists, nurse practitioners, IT personnel, security engineers. So those people are going to be required to have a minimum education in that skill and very possibly have some, some experience in that skill. So that's why I encourage everybody to always go look at the vacancy announcements in USA Jobs, and you will see in government excruciating detail exactly what is required if you want to go down that path. And that's what we call our foreign service specialist. Now, when people think of the classic diplomat, the people you see in the movies, those are called generalists or officers. Here's the irony. They're not required to have a college degree at all. We use a test-in process, and they have to show through that test-in process that they have the ability to learn what we are going to teach them. Now, the other irony is the overwhelming majority have uh, master's degrees or higher. So even though it's not required, more than 50% are coming in with advanced degrees or they acquire advanced degrees. And then if someone distinguishes themselves and, and develops a certain skill while they're working in the government, a newbie's not gonna get this, but someone who has some experience would be like Ms. Monroe, where the Department of State will pay to send them to Princeton, Woodrow Wilson School, or to the War College or somewhere else because they're developing an expertise. So the question becomes, well, how do they get this education? And the answer is we have our own school. So we have Foreign Service Institute, which is a nine minute bus ride from Maine State across the river in Northern Virginia. And there we have native speaking language instructors. So if you speak five languages when you come in, I dare you to test with those people and you're not gonna be so confident anymore because they're not testing you like you're talking with your grandmother, they're testing you like you're talking with a government official abroad. And these officers, are required to have a minimum of one foreign language. So they're going to have to learn language, even if they come in without one, but they demonstrate they have the ability to learn, we'll teach them, we're not too concerned about that. We will invest up to two years teaching people language. If someone takes Mandarin or Arabic, we will invest one year at Foreign Service Institute and another year abroad before they even start their tour. So as far as languages are concerned, we will teach them what we need them to know. The other part is called tradecraft. And tradecraft is whatever job you need to do. So I had a, a guy who was a chemistry teacher and he was my human resources manager and did an excellent job because they taught him what he needed to know to do human resources. So my point I'm trying to make is you have to understand exactly what your goals are and then it depends based on that. So if someone wants to be doing the same sort of work, be um, a finance person or an HR person, if they decide that's what I want to do, then yeah, you're going to have to have some experience with that RC education undergrad or experience professionally or a combination of both. But if someone wants to be a biology major or here's, here's one, this past week I talked to two people who were opera singers, go figure. 
who would think that in the same week I find two people in the State Department who are opposite? So as long as they have the ability to learn, then they can come in and we will teach them. And guess what? They're going to have, that's their career. They're going to learn something, go to post, execute it, do it, get back, breathe, and then go do it again. And that's what you do every two to three years. Of course, you get breaks where you can hang out in Atlanta. But other than that, that's what the career is. So it's really more a mindset of the students than the major. You have to have that personality and those skills as opposed to that narrow major. And oh, by the way, I, I, um, journalism, I, I'll, I'll echo this, and I think all of us will say journalism or anything that teaches you good writing and critical thinking will only help you. That's, it's almost assumed you can write and you have critical thinking skills. Thank you so much, Alan. Um, Deb, I know you didn't go directly into the DIA as you explained, but if somebody is really interested in security, what would you suggest? Oh, mute. <laughs> Sorry. I've done it. That's that's three times in a row. Oh, um, I did not go straight into DIA. However, I've been a hiring manager for several decades. Um, I spent a lot of time on DIA's entry-level hiring panel. So I have literally reviewed thousands of resumes of entry-level folks. So here's, here's my two cents. Um, get involved in activities in your university as an undergraduate, as a graduate. Uh, if there's any kind of, if someone gives me a resume that says I went to the university and I don't care if you got a 4.0 coming out of the university and all I did was go to class, uh, I'm not interested in that person because I need someone who is, uh, who yes, makes good grade, who's smart, uh, but also someone who's been involved, uh, been involved in campus activities, been involved volunteering in the community, works summer jobs. I want someone who's done something while they've gone to school. Um, and it doesn't have to be a paid job but they need to be doing something other than uh, hanging out with their friends and going to class. Because um, someone who's trying to give back, to be involved, uh, to, to uh, collaborate with other people, be engaged with other people uh, on a volunteer or professional basis, that is absolutely critical. Um, I think that uh, Billy mentioned uh, National Guard. Um, any experience with ROTC, uh, a National Guard, that sort of thing from a defense perspective, or previously served, say they were an enlisted person who were in the military for a few years, left, got their degree and was trying to come back in, I would give that person with an undergraduate degree even more of, uh, 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 even more important because they understand Defense is a completely different language. So someone who actually understands it coming in is a good thing. Um, <laughs> there's a couple things I wanted to make sure I hit. So yes, um, depending on the job you want, again, to echo um, what Alan said, it depends on the job you want. If uh, you can look at DIA, I've been seeing ads lately, they're desperate for inspectors. Um, we have our own whole police force. 
So if you have a criminal justice degree, you can apply with an undergraduate degree in criminal justice and become a, a, a police officer at DIA because we have our own security force. So there's a gamut of opportunities depending on your undergraduate degree. If you want to come in uh, and be uh, in the analytic career path, because that is, that is what I was involved in and what I hired for. Um, most had a master's degree. Um, looking at some of the resumes, I, you know, and where they are, are at coming in now, I personally couldn't have, I wouldn't have hired myself because I couldn't have competed. Uh, language skills, overseas uh, uh, travel, overseas uh, study, um, cultural uh, understanding. If you have a, a family uh, that you connect with, a family that is, uh, if you're of Arabic descent, if you're of, uh, you know, uh, German descent or any of that where you have that cultural identity to bring into DIA, it's a good thing because the one thing we want to get away from is, is mirroring and thinking that uh, our, our, the rest of the world thinks the same way we do. So that cultural understanding uh, and, and ability to think globally, as has been said, is absolutely critical. So I look for people who've demonstrated that and as everybody has said, people who are inquisitive, flexible, uh, energetic, all of those things. Great, thank you so much, Deb, I appreciate that. Um, Megan O'Donohue, uh, what about you for the Peace Corps? What do you think they uh, are looking for? What can students do now to kind of uh, situate themselves? Because it is, I should say, um, you know, the Peace Corps is a competitive uh, process. So students should know that it's not a given. You do have to apply and it is pretty selective. Um, so even if you want to go into the Peace Corps to then go into uh, one of these others careers or to set yourself up, um, it is selective, it is competitive and prestigious. Um, and so you might wanna to try to do some things now to help out your application. So Megan, what do you think uh, would best serve them to do that? Absolutely, and that's a really good point. And something that I was planning on bringing up is that yes, it is competitive to get in there. Um, it is, they, it, the government is making an investment in people to send them abroad and it is a two year long investment not you're you're a volunteer however your funding is you you are on a living stipend and they are covering your health expenses your living expenses everything is covered so they're not going to just have anybody go there because it's it's an investment so it is rather competitive and i think that what deborah was bringing up earlier was a really good point is that they most of the time people that are applying are coming from undergrad that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is coming from undergrad there are lots of people that actually have go midway through their career and decide, you know what, actually, I don't want to do undergrad. I had a friend who was a lawyer and she decided that she wanted to do Peace Corps and she wanted to do Peace Corps so that she could actually go work in the State Department. So she dropped her job as a lawyer, joined the Peace Corps, and she was um, like in her mid-40s at that point and then was able to use her position in the Peace Corps to launch her own career into the State Department. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to be straight out of undergrad. However, most people are. So when you're applying to Peace Corps, you need to be able to show that you have experience doing work that is translatable to Peace Corps work. Now, because they have changed the application process to be more specific, that makes it easier to get to a post that you want to go to and at the same time, 
more competitive to get to those posts. So for example, if you wanna do say uh, youth development in Morocco, that's often a really desired post. So you need to be able to show, for example, if you want to do youth development, that you have experience working uh, with young people in your community, working at summer camps, volunteering. You need to be able to show that you have experience. It doesn't matter if you have like a, an education degree, if you don't have experience working with young people. So you need to be able to show that outside of the classroom, you are doing these activities that you're signing up to do. That still applied when I was going there. I was, I was uh, told to go into health, but before they would even give me my kind of official invitation, I had about nine months and they say, between these nine months, you need to get between 40 and 60 hours of experience doing community health work, or we're not giving you this invitation. So I ended up volunteering with a local organization that worked on HIV AIDS awareness and interaction with the community. And through that, I was able to demonstrate, okay, I have some experience working in this. I have the capacity to do this. Uh, and I'm able to develop more skills in the process. So you need to be able to show what skills that you have, but at the same time, you're not on your own here. You can, like I said earlier, communicate with a Peace Corps recruiter, just somebody who's designated to your area, and you can share with them kind of essentially a rundown of your resume. You can say here, these are the things I do. Where is my application lacking? And normally they take the time to say, okay, well, uh, this looks good, but you need to do a bit more of this. So there are resources that are available for that. And that's that really helped me in my application as well. But if you know you want to do Peace Corps uh, and you're sure about it, really start at least a year and a half in advance preparing for your application because it is highly competitive. It is more competitive now. And you need to be able to show that you, you know the area that you want to go, you know the job that you want to do and have experience doing it. So do your research and start very well in advance because while the application process has been accelerated, it's now about six months between application and normally start date. Uh, it's still a very long process being able to be prepared for that application. So do your research on the application, peacecore.gov, uh, and also speak with a recruiter. Those are probably the two best things to prepare an application if it's something you definitely want to do. Great, thank you, Megan. Um, and Billy, what do you think in terms of stepping stones that uh, students should or could have that can make them more competitive specifically for USAID? Um, and again, referencing back to the chat box in regards to students who are particularly curious about majors, grad school and, and language. Yeah, I think um, and some of this is, is going back to what we referenced in uh, Peace Corps, I feel like I'm also plugging Peace Corps, just that experience. Um, and, um, but even I, I, have, I have colleagues though that, um, foreign service colleagues at aid that actually don't have any overseas experience. And, and what our um, HCTM or, or human resources allowed was um, demonstrate, uh, you know, cultural competence were you in a rural setting? Were you in a, a, a city? Uh, or were you on a tribal nation delivering services? And so even that in aid, there is a, uh, there's some ways to demonstrate that you can adapt to um, uh, different settings and, and, and um, connect with people in, in a variety of ways. And, and I think some of this, this entire conversation is, is, is reminding me, there's um, at aid right now, and I think, I think throughout the country, there's, there's a lot of uh, conversation going on about DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and quality, and, and accessibility as well. And, and, and some of the things we're doing at, 
at aid we even started to ask those questions we're like why this major why are we saying this major are there certain people and groups that are historically excluded uh, from um, those majors and, and um, just looking at those data points and, and even um, different questions on applications and, and interviews like how why are we asking that question um, um, are we asking it in a way that it ex is excluding groups of people? And so it, it's the conversation is reminding me of, of, of that conversation that's happening within the agency right now, um, where we still have certainly standards and we have like, again, uh, for USAID Foreign Service, you have to have a master's, um, but with all the other mechanisms that are in place, um, and we generally do have, hey, had this degree, but there uh, are this language, and but there is a conversation about, well, let's really take a deep dive and make sure we understand why we're saying that and, and what are the implications for, for different requirements. Um, but I'll always end with Peace Corps and just the what a great opportunity that is over. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, thank you, really. I appreciate that. Um, this one I'm going to kind of open to the panel because I don't think everybody has a re response and some of you have already referenced it and I'll make sure to put, I, I know, uh, Pat has already put some references in our chat box, um, but you know, um, Billy as well as Deborah as well as Megan all kind of had this theme about um, gaining experience, and it might not necessarily be international. You know, Deborah was talking about you know volunteering your time um, for specific areas, and then uh, Billy and Megan were talking about like even if it's not international perhaps even, you know, working in an area here that shows those kind of skills. So uh, my next question is in regards to specific internships. Um, if you guys have resources or recommendations for students on uh, specific places to look for in kind of open it, I'll, I'll start with you, Professor Bernard, but then everybody, you know, if people want to um, post something in the chat box, we can do that because um, not everybody might have specific recommendations in this regard. Oh, I think mute, sir. Here's someone who's been teaching online for 18 months because of COVID and I still can't remember to unmute. <laughs> um, let me uh, speak to IJM because um, uh, has a very robust intern and fellows program. I helped develop it. Uh, I mobilized students for it. I recruited for it. Um, and so uh, in, in terms of undergraduate students at the junior and senior level, there are internship uh, possibilities at our headquarters in Washington, DC. And you can come from any major you can think of uh, because you're working in a variety of, of sectors of our operation at headquarters from uh, social work to criminal justice, to accounting, to uh, writing, to photography, uh, just across the board. Um, and those are uh, three times a year, fall, spring, and summer. Uh, and then we uh, have uh, internships in the field for people who have graduated with their undergraduate degree, where you can go into the field for a year, working in one of our field offices, again, in many different areas uh, of work, depending on your degree and your interest and your skill set. Um, and then uh, we have a fellows pro. Oh, let me also say summer legal internships for any law students or people going to law school. More often than not, you have to do or you should do a summer legal internship, uh, 2L and 3L. Um, and so we provide those summer legal internships in the field office where a, a, a legal student, a law student, will go for uh, 
uh, a summer and work in one of our field offices with our legal teams. Then we have a fellowship program for uh, people with their master, master's degrees uh, and also people who are mid-career. We've had mid-career partners and law firms who've taken leave uh, for a year, if not more, and gone to the field. I've had retired folks come in, uh, retired psychiatric social worker, retired lawyer who went to the field for two years as a fellow. Um, so there's some amazing opportunities to work in the field. Now with IJM, 95% of our staff in the field are nationals working in their own countries. And so coming alongside the folks in the field are people in internships and fellowships, some that we hire. And of course, more of those folks are hired at headquarters or in our partners, partner offices around the world as well. But it's a great opportunity uh, to kind of step into this world and to see what it's like, uh, to try it on, if you will, or to use your skill set as a graduate, <coughs> uh, an undergraduate, uh, who's graduated, uh, and then maybe someone who's finished their master's degree in social work or criminal justice or comes out of the police department or or FBI. We've had people from a lot of different um, law enforcement agencies who've come and worked as uh, uh, as investigators in the field. So it, go to IJM.org, go to the career page, and all of the internships and fellowships and opportunities are available there. Great, thank you, um, Professor. And I know one of the questions in our chat box was specifically in reference to um, internships for non-traditional students. So it sounds like with yours that they can be out of college, they can be professionals. It doesn't Absolutely. have to be a traditional student, is that correct? Absolutely. Okay, great. So I'll kind of uh, echo that here with Alan and State Department. Um, State Department is kind of a behemoth to try to explain all of the internship opportunities. So Alan, if you just want to uh, direct people to where to go, because there's a, there's a lot there, I know. Yeah, we have a lot of different opportunities. Some of them are, are State Department specific, and others are actually federal government programs that we participate in. Uh, again, I encourage everybody to go to careers.state.gov, and there what you can do is you can register. So when something opens, you'll get an email saying it's open, and that way you don't miss out on any deadlines because, believe it or not, we actually have some programs, one specific program that is open July 1 and closed at the end of July, and no one's thinking about getting their next internship. We also have issues with having to get uh, security clearances. So many of our programs have already finished. So that's why I say go to careers.state.gov, read through each of these programs. I'm gonna mention two specifically now and then give a general statement. The two I wanna mention now are because they're currently open or will be open. One is our US Department of State Student Internship Program. This is the classic internship. This is one where students may go abroad or they may do their internship in the States, all based on wherever the needs are at any given time. So uh, these are unpaid internships. If someone does go abroad, it's a great experience to have that embassy. You learn a lot there, it's a fantastic experience, but you know you can learn a lot at Maine State as well. So don't discount that, because we always have so much competition overseas to go to Paris and Madrid, but meanwhile, we may not have as much competition uh, at C Street in DC, and you can learn just as much there. So I encourage students to do that. The other one, I, oh, by the way, that's supposed to open on the 8th, so by Friday. If you go to careers.safe.gov, you may see Friday and get an email saying it's open. 
The other one I want to mention is one that we created because we cannot find IT people. No one thinks about us for IT, so we create our own fellowship. And it's a two-year fellowship called the Foreign Affairs IT Fellowship, or FATE. So if you go to fatefellowship.org, or again, careers.state.gov, and it'll lead you to fatefellowship.org, you'll read about a two-year fellowship that you can be a junior, it'll pay for your junior and senior year to get a bachelor's degree in science and an IT-related, or if you're graduating or already graduated and worked and you want to go back for a two-year master's degree, let's say you majored in accounting undergrad and you've been out in the real world for a year doing something technical and you want to get a two-year master's degree in IT, you would qualify for the FATE Fellowship as long as you're getting that two-year master's degree. That one closes January 31 of 2022. So again, get ahead of the curve and find out about those. With that statement, wait. here's a statement I always tell students. Don't get your heart set on any one internship. Focus more on what you want to do. So if you want to be a public diplomacy officer in the U.S. Department of State, you want to be the face. You want to be the spokesman, the speech writer. You want to interact with journalists. You want to maintain our website at post. That's great. Do you need that internship to Department of State? Don't other agencies do the exact same thing? So don't get your focus on the U.S. Department of State internship. If you can get the same experience somewhere else, take it. And it will build your resume and you have to get this good experience. So when it comes time to try to get that full-time job, if you still work Department of State, now your resume is even stronger with a full-time job. So that's the one thing I tell young people is, Cast a wide net at first, and over time, you'll narrow it down naturally. But at this stage, cast a wide net and, and go for whatever truly interests you. And then, as Ms. Monroe said, once you get there, distinguish yourself. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ellen. And, and Deb, I know you provided a a document, a Google document, which I did post earlier, but I know there's a lot of comments. So I'm going to post it again directly so that um, our audience members can look at that. But do you want to provide a few comments in regards to the internships available? Just, just a quick comment. Um, there is a link, I think, that was posted in the chat for intelligencecareers.gov. Go there and read because there are internships at every intelligence community uh, organization. And the best way to get a job in the community, quite frankly, is to get an internship, which are extremely competitive. Uh, apply for an internship, do extremely well. And if you are successful because of the process, the clearance, the, intelligent, the security clearance process you have to go through just to be an intern, by the time uh, you get through that, the government has already invested goodness $50,000 in getting you cleared. So if you're selected for an internship, they're generally going to think that uh, you're worth that investment. And if you have that clearance and you do well as an intern, there are is a very good chance that uh, you'll have an opportunity upon graduation to, to, um, to succeed. You can apply for an internship um, after you have 30 semester hours. So you could be in graduate school or undergraduate. You just have to have a minimum of 30 semester hours. You have to have a 3.0. You have to be a U.S. citizen, period. 
anything in the intelligence community. Uh, you can't have a dual citizenship and you can't be, and you can't be a, a green card resident, whatever. Uh, you have to be a US citizen. And we have all the fun things like drug tests and polygraphs and lots of fun things. Um, the other thing I recommend folks check out is the uh, uh, National Security Education Program, uh, aka the Born Scholarship. Uh, that is another really good opportunity that a lot of people don't know about. Um, and finally, um, if you're very much interested in DIA, uh, there's a link to go to D under uh, uh, the, the DIA.mil website for students. Um, all the places you apply is in our careers. You have to go in there and fill out an application. So I highly encourage you to uh, create an account on our career site and look at all the options for uh, potential jobs and you can get an idea of what we do. Great. Thank you so much, um, Deborah. I appreciate that. Um, I know Billy provided a document USA and I will uh, post that now for everyone. And Megan, do you have anything specific uh, that any kind of internships that prepare people well for the Peace Corps? Uh, yeah, and this is, I'll be very, very quick. Um, depending on the university that you go to, some universities, but not all have programs called Peace Corps Prep. And that is the certificate that the university gives you after completing a certain amount of language requirements, coursework, community work, that um, makes your uh, application more competitive. Now, this is not available at all universities. Uh, in Tennessee specifically, the only universities that have these um, uh, programs are University of Tennessee Knoxville and ETSU. Uh, so other universities do not have specifically Peace Corps prep, but that does not mean if you don't go to those universities, but that does not mean that your application is not going to be credible. Uh, you can still just get in contact with recruiters and figure out by your communication with them what would be the best way to make your application more competitive. Uh, but besides that, there's no specific internship um, for um, potential applicants. Great, thank you. Um, I know our panel is scheduled to end at 7 p.m. Um, and I appreciate the time of everyone attending, including our esteemed panelists. So I would like to give one minute uh, thereabouts to each of our panelists to just provide concluding remarks um, to our audience members. So we'll just go in the same order. Uh, Professor uh, Bernard, you can uh, go first. Well, I just wanted to say, uh, don't discount uh, internships and practicum experiences on your college campus. Uh, so definitely connect with your career services and look for opportunities, even as a freshman, sophomore, but even junior and senior that are local. I think it speaks to what Deborah was talking about, that you need to show uh, something outside of the classroom, quite frankly, and your involvement in the community. It also speaks to what was said earlier by Billy, I think, about cultural competencies and how you can build those by serving in your own community. And there are many, many internship opportunities with NGOs, uh, nonprofits, uh, community-based uh, organizations right there in your own, uh, your own cities and areas where you're going to school uh, that would love to have you come and work and develop skill set um, and have that, that that also helps to uh, uh, on your resume and helps prepare you for the next step, whatever that might be. Might be. Great, thank you, Wayne. Um, <laughs> Alan, um, concluding remarks? 
by Colin Powell. And he said, go to careers.state.gov. That's why I keep repeating that over and over and over. But I didn't tell you in 2004, I sat there for three hours and went through careers.state.gov and decided that's what I wanted to do. I said, Marcella, would you come here? Do you want to do this? She said, yep. From that point forward, that was my goal. I contacted the diplomat in residence at Florida International University, and a year and a half later, I was in the U.S. Foreign Service. So if you do go to careers.state.gov and read through it thoroughly, shoot me an email at dirsouth at state.gov, dirsouth at state.gov, and we can set an appointment to talk about your specific issues. Um, there you go. Personal email, folks. That's that's pretty that's pretty compelling. So you might want to take it up, but read it first, right? <laughs> that was the charge. All right. Thank you so much, Alan, for that. Uh, Deb, um, I will quickly say that um, if you want to do something to try and make a difference, um, there are a lot of opportunities in the intelligence community to do things in national security. Um, that are nothing like the movies, but uh, you can really make a difference. Uh, you want to do um, check out check out what's online and apply for internships and and come into the community. Um, it is often challenging, but it is very it's very worthwhile. Um, and uh, there was something else I was going to query quickly. Oh. Um, like Alan on the document, I think on DIA stuff, the, my email is at the bottom. And uh, if you have additional questions about the IC, uh, I'm, I'm happy to take them, uh, Deb at tnwac.org. Uh, Thank you so much, Deb, I appreciate that. Um, Megan? Yeah, so I guess the biggest thing in terms of Peace Corps is do your research before you go. It is very tough. It is gritty. It uh, requires a lot of flexibility, thinking on your feet, and it is it is not a vacation. Um, so before you go, understand that you are not going on vacation for two years. You are going to be most likely living by yourself, someplace isolated in not quite comfortable conditions. However, if you still if you do your research, you hear everything that can be, and you still think, huh. This is this is for me. It's probably for you. Um, if you if it's if that's what you want, and this is the kind of you you have that desire to do this, you are probably the right person for the Peace Corps. Uh, and it is a pro, it is a um, it is a contract, a two year job that will only help you in your career in the future. Um, I am not working in international relations. I am in fact uh, going back into grad school working on my PhD because I want to um, be a professor. But my Peace Corps career actively helped me in developing where I, in becoming where I am right now. Uh, so it can help you in so many different ways, uh, but do your research first. Great, thank you so much, Megan. Uh, Billy? Yeah, just um, do, do your research. And then even if you're uh, a little scared or uncertain, um, lean into it. I think some of the best career advice I ever got was don't wait 
until you're 100% prepared for your next assignment. Um, it's going to be too late. <laughs> um, and that I think is for those listening there in college, I would even say that's applicable right now. If there's a class you're thinking about, ah, it's too hard. Be, it's okay to be a little scared and just lean into it um, and don't wait until you're 100% ready for your next move. Great. Thank you so much, Billy. And I know uh, Megan alluded to it, as did Deborah. You know, while there can be the team, our last kind of question about work life balance and then the challenges that I know all of you have experienced in these careers. Um, so please, yeah, do your research and look and see like they can be gritty and they can be certainly hard and challenging, um, but also rewarding. And so thank you for kind of incorporating that into those closing comments. Um, I want to thank our panelists so very much for uh, their candor and their expertise this evening. And my goodness, for sharing their emails. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful resource that is for um, our audience members. Um, I also want to highlight a couple of things to our audience members. Uh, the Tennessee World Affairs Council, which is the uh, organization that is hosting uh, this event, actually does offer internships. So if you are in the Middle Tennessee area, you can intern for a organization that is promoting global awareness. And you can do that. I believe Pat put his email in the chat box. So there's a direct connection for an internship right there. Um, also, if you're interested specifically in international business, so we kind of intentionally didn't have business represented on this panel because we have a whole other panel that is dedicated to that on October 27th, specifically women in international business. So please check out the TNWAC uh, calendar for that. It's scheduled, I believe, at the same time slot, uh, similar format. So if that kind of piques your interest, uh, please go ahead and check that out. There's also lots of other um, events and webinars that you can check out there as well. Um, thank you very much to my to the panelists. Uh, thank you very much to all of us who joined us on uh, Facebook, as well as um, who registered through the TNWAC site. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thank you for your patience and going just a little bit over time, um, but thank you for a great event. <laughs>